This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Some of my reading friends, Jan, Mari and Jenny, told me about a book that they thought was the best book they've read all year. That book is The Dictionary of Lost Words. So there's no David this morning. It's just me and a long chat with author Pip Williams. What happened a hundred years ago? We know that the Spanish flu was around, but there were other world events and word happenings as well. Pip Williams has written about some of these in the Dictionary of Lost Words. Welcome, Pip. Jan, it's lovely to be here. Let's start with the words. Look, I take the convenience of having a dictionary for granted. Just briefly, what's the history of the Oxford English Dictionary? Well, I'm like you, Jan. I took it for granted too. Um, And I didn't really know that there was much difference between dictionaries, but there is in fact. And the Oxford English Dictionary is uh, unique because it's a a history of words. Uh, It doesn't just tell us what the words are that we use and then provide a definition. It tells us how a word has been used back through the centuries, back through history. So back in the 1850s, a group of men from the Philological Society of London decided that they needed a new English dictionary. They needed to improve on Johnson's dictionary, which was a little bit quirky, (laughs) although very popular. And so they set about to define every single word in the English language, including words that were no longer Um, in common use. And they didn't just want to define them, they wanted to understand how those words had been used throughout history. So from the very first time they were written down. So where did Dr James Murray get these words from? So James Murray, um, in fact, was the second editor, but the first editor really didn't get stuck into it. And so they replaced him with James Murray in probably 1870, which is when it really got started. And most of the words, um, a lot of words did come from Johnson's dictionary and they double-checked them and um, corrected some of the errors and mistakes. Occasionally Johnson just made up definitions if he wasn't sure (laughs) where a word had come from. But basically, uh, a lot of the words came from volunteers. So uh, James Murray, I think, was one of the first people to use crowdsourcing Mm. as a way of completing this really enormous project. And so he did a call out to the general public through magazines and periodicals and asked them to send in examples of how words were used in any book they could get their hands on, really. Uh, Occasionally, he would publish a list of words that he wanted definitions for or examples of sentences, how they'd been used in sentences. Other times, people just sent in interesting words, but also very mundane words, which was very important. Simon Winchester has written a book about the collection of words, The Surgeon of Crowthorn, which you actually talk about. And there was one chap, William Chester Minor, a millionaire American Civil War surgeon turned lunatic, imprisoned in Broadmoor Asylum. He had time on his hands and he did a lot of collecting, as did Edith Thompson. Yes. Now, that's actually where my idea came from to start writing this novel. I read The Surgeon of Crowthorn, which I absolutely loved. It's a very 
pithy book, a very interesting non-fiction account, as you said. And what I gleaned from that was not just something about the relationship between James Murray, the editor, and one of the volunteers, but I also got a bit of a sense of how the dictionary was compiled. And I realised that it was a male endeavour. It was something that had a lot of men involved in the decision-making and in the doing and the collecting of words, the lexicographers, the editors, most of the assistants, but not all. There were some women who were assistants. But most importantly, the majority of the literature that they referred to in order to define words was pre-20th century. So by default, it was a male canon of writing. And I have a background in, in social research and, and this piqued my interest because I just knew that no matter how scientific, no matter how uh, fair the editors wanted to be, their tools were biased. The, the texts that they were referring to had a gender bias and there was nothing they could do about that. And yet that was still the criteria for inclusion in the dictionary that a word had to have been written down. So it doesn't just exclude the people who weren't writing things down. It also excludes a class of people who were illiterate as well. So women are excluded, but also, you know, many working classes experiences is also excluded. So when this dictionary was finally finished, who was invited to the dinner? <laughs> oh, that's such a good question. And again, this was one of the very early bits of information that just I was thrilled to sort of come across. There were a few little thrilling pieces of research, and this was one of them. And I, I went and did some research at Oxford University Press. And in the archives, I, there were all sorts of materials. There were the slips that the words were written on. There were old proofs showing words that had been crossed out. There were letters and photographs. And one of the artifacts, I suppose, in, in the archives was the dining setup at Goldsmiths Hall in London for the final celebration of the publication of the Oxford English Dictionary, presided over by the Prime Minister at the time. Now, 150 men were invited to that dinner, not a single woman. <laughs> However, three women were invited to sit in the balcony and watch the men eat. And one of those women was Edith Thompson, who you mentioned earlier. And the other two women, in fact, were Ross Frith Murray, who was the daughter of James Murray, and Eleanor Bradley, who was the daughter of one of the other editors, Henry Bradley. So these three women had the privilege of sitting on hard wooden seats and leaning over the balcony and watching the men being served salmon and, and champagne and, <laughs> and, and moose and so on. Well, this was also the time of Emily Pankhurst and the suffragette movement. There's a lot of research, in fact, in the Dictionary of Lost Words. This gives substance to the fiction, and the fiction includes Esme Nicol. Now, who is she? So Esme Nicol is my attempt to try and answer a couple of questions. When I, when I originally had the idea for this book, it was because I was curious about what it would mean if the dictionary was biased towards men's experience. 
And the way I decided to explore that question, to explore whether words might mean different things to women compared to men, was to throw a young woman into the context of the scriptorium. And the scriptorium is the place where James Murray and his team were defining the words. It was literally a garden shed in the garden of his house in Oxford. And so I created this character called Esme. I had her sitting under the sorting table, uh, which was a large wooden table that did exist in the scriptorium where the lexicographers would sit around and define the words. And she was the daughter of one of those lexicographers who's also fictional. And I just essentially wanted to see what would happen as she grew up in this environment and how she would interact with the words and how the words might interact with her to help her understand who she is and her place in society. Well, she was helped through her life by a servant to the Murray family, Lizzie Lester. Another word for Lizzie could be bondmaid. Why is that word so important to the creation of this book? So I, I said earlier that there were some just beautiful serendipitous bits of information that I came across in the research. And this was the very first one. I think this is the one that made me decide that it really was a story worth pursuing. The word bondmaid is the one and only word that has ever gone missing from the Oxford English Dictionary. It was literally lost. And when I say literally, I mean that in that these words were all written on small pieces of paper and that's how they were transferred from the scriptorium to the Oxford University Press where they were typeset and printed. And somewhere along the way, this one word got lost and no one knows how. And so I decided that my character Esme had something to do with that loss. Um, and yes, and so the word bondmaid means a slave girl. And it has its own story, if you like, throughout the Dictionary of Lost Words. It's a bit like a character. Absolutely. Because bondmaid, when Lizzie was told about the word, Lizzie thought, oh, to be in service, that's what I do. I'm lucky to have it. Where Esme thought, to be in service, oh, that's most unfortunate. Now, bondmaid made its way back into the reprint of the book, but some words, as you say, never did, or their meaning was not helpful. Another word that came out was listless. But Lizzie, the young servant, she said, oh, what I am is knackered, quite different to defining listless. Where did Lizzie take Esme to collect other words? two words listless and knackered I feel like one of them is you know to be listless is is almost like a privilege if you live a life where you can occasionally feel listless <laughs> it means you've got time on your hands I came across the word knackered throughout my childhood because it's I think it's an English word essentially and so a lot of my English family have used it but it's not in the first Oxford English dictionary even though the word knacker and knack knackery are and so it makes sense to me that this word probably originated, you know, a long time ago, but was never in the dictionary. And that made me think that, um, of course, there would be other words that are used by people who were not writing things down, uh, corrupt the English language as those educated men would like us to to read it and say it. And so Lizzie takes Esme to the covered market, which is a market that's been around in Oxford for a very, very long time. And at the covered market, 
they meet an old woman called Mabel. Oh. And Mabel is a very poor, very decrepit <laughs> old prostitute, actually. And so her way of using language is very, very different to the way Esme has heard other people use language. And, and she becomes fascinated. Well, this is where Esme gets new knowledge. She learns such terms as being in the game or in the trade. And another definition for a shaft. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes. And this might be family radio, so we won't go into what the definitions of all these words are. Even sort of the C word, you know, how that got into the dictionary itself. So Mabel was such a character, a beautiful piece of fiction. Why did you give her the ability to whittle? Oh, yeah. Well, I suppose it's that um, as I wrote... So obviously that's not something, you know, when I was, um, I suppose, thinking about the structure of this novel, I did plan it out to some extent before I got started, though it does change a lot as you, as you actually write. But every scene writes itself, if you know what I mean. So I might start a scene knowing what I want it to do, but I don't necessarily know how I will make it do that until I start writing. And Mabel was a character that I thought of. And as I write, in a way, her personality and, and what she's doing just starts coming out of my fingertips and into the keyboard. And I felt like she, she wouldn't just be sitting there waiting for customers. She'd be doing something. And because she was very poor, you know, she couldn't be doing the sorts of things that other women might do. She wouldn't be knitting. She's not that sort of a character. She wouldn't be able to afford the yarn for, for a start. Her little stall at the covered market is simply two crates full of flotsam and jetsam that she's found at the edge of the, at the, edge of the river, essentially. It's junk. And so one of those things I thought that she might be able to do in terms of using her hands is whittling because all she needs is a knife and the, the rest she just finds. She finds the pieces of driftwood and then she whittles them into beautiful things. But it's something, while she is in some ways, you know, a, a decrepit, ugly creature in many ways, you know, the way she looks, the way she smells, her language, everything about her, she, she does this absolutely exquisitely beautiful thing with her whittling. Well, in contrast to Mabel, we have Tilda, who becomes a friend of Esme. And, well, tell us a bit about Tilda. Yeah, so Esme, you know, as my main character, is an ordinary woman. I often thought of her as, as not, she's not me in any way, but I did think of her as the kind of ordinary woman. You know, when you think, who would I have been back during the suffragette period? You know, would I have been one of the women marching or um, would I have been one of the women going to prison and starving myself? And I often think, I don't think I would have been. I don't think I'm that brave, perhaps, or I don't think I'm that radical. And yet I would believe in what they were doing. And I tried to create a character that was more like that. She wasn't the hero of anything, but she was very influenced and very open to all these people around her. She doesn't have a mother. Her mother died when she was born. And so she's a person who seeks out female mentors to some extent. And she finds them all over the place and from various walks of life. So Tilda is an actress that she meets who is one of these bold, brave, incredible women that you might read about in the history books. 
if, you know, if she had her chance. And so she has a certain influence on the way Esme thinks and what Esme does and also on some of the, I suppose, challenges that Esme has in terms of how she approaches some of the issues of the day. Well, she explains that sex can be enjoyable for women, which is good. Yes. So there's a lesson right there. But she's very involved in a suffragette movement and the newspapers wrote about the women on hunger strikes in prison and the horror of being force-fed. Now, I'm going to ask Pip Williams to read from the Dictionary of Lost Words just what's happening to a few of these women and how it's affecting Esme. Sure. So this is where she's found out that some women have been sent to prison for their behaviour. Charlotte Marsh was the daughter of artist Arthur Hardwick Marsh. Laura Ainsworth's father was a respected school inspector. Mary Lee was the wife of a builder. This was how the women were defined. Bondmaid. It came back to me then and I realised that the words most often used to define us were words that described our function in relation to others. Even the most benign words, maiden, wife, mother, told the world whether we were virgins or not. What was the male equivalent of maiden? I could not think of it. What was the male equivalent of missus, of whore, of common scold? I looked out the window towards the scriptorium, the place where the definitions of all these words were being bedded down. Which words would define me? Which would be used to judge or contain? I was no maiden, yet I was no man's wife, and I had no desire to be. Oh. Now, the book is mainly set in Oxford. The way you describe the city was divided into gown and town. The gown, there's the university and the Bodleian Library, where not even the Queen could borrow books. And the town supported the gown. Part of the town was the printing press. Your descriptions of the printing method were just as vivid as making the dictionary itself. Did you visit? Yes. So I, I was really lucky enough to go to Oxford twice uh, to do some research. And both times I spent time at Oxford University Press, which is where the dictionary archives are. And I had the pleasure of walking around the press with um, Martin Moore, who is the press archivist. And so he showed me a lot of the old printing tools. He showed me how uh, the typesetting used to be done. And because I have a character in there who's quite an important character, who's a typesetter, I wanted to be able to, I suppose, describe that accurately. Of course, there's always, when you do research on any book, there's always the temptation to put in more than is necessary uh, to push the, for, the, the story forward. But also, I think there can be a temptation not to put in enough to make it fascinating and authentic, if you like. So because this is fiction, it was important as well, though, to give it a sense of truth. And that was done, I hope, uh, by putting characters in real situations, truthful situations, so that you could see how they move. It's a little bit like giving Mabel something to yep. put in her hands, something to do with her hands. I had to give people occupations. I had to give them authentic lives. Well, yes, along with the fact we have the fiction. The fiction's Gareth, and he, who started at the printing works at 14. He's now 30 and responsible, had good leadership and made officer material 
history takes us to the World War I. There were new words associated with the war, popular words, and there were different ways to use words. Esme heard that F word didn't always have a negative meaning. It could be good. Yeah. Her assumptions were always being challenged. So, look, give us a little bit more out of the Dictionary of Lost Words, this time from page 193. And this is a time that Esme is with her Aunt Dita and Aunt Dita's sister, Beth. They've invited three male professors to this afternoon tea. Yes, so Dita and Beth are um, much older women. Dita is Edith Thompson, essentially, and uh, she works for the dictionary as a volunteer. When the men were seated, Dita and I arranged ourselves at either ends of the settee. Beth poured the tea and nodded for me to pass the cake. When everyone was served and the compliments about the Madeira had been given, I sat back and waited for Beth to ask some provocative question that would give the men their cue. I expected gentlemen's anecdotes and hubris. Intellectual disagreements argued um, diminishing points of logic. I expected the occasional entreaty for an opinion out of courtesy. And I was already anticipating my disappointment at the automatic taming of language that would be observed due to the fact that we three wore skirts. But that was not how the afternoon proceeded. These gentlemen had come to listen to test their ideas and be persuaded otherwise, not by each other, but by the sisters. Oh, yes, the women. They're getting a bit of power. Not much, but... Yes. <laughs> Pip Williams, you've got an Australian connection through the book. So, of course, we're looking at the suffragettes, but you often refer back to when Australia got votes for women. It was a lot earlier, wasn't it? It was. Um, now, New Zealand was the first place in the world where women got the vote back in 1893. But women didn't have the right to stand for parliament in New Zealand at that time. They just had the right to vote. South Australia was the first place in the world where women had full enfranchisement that was equal to men. So they could vote and they could run for parliament. And that was in 1894. And interestingly, and a lot of people don't realise this, Aboriginal people also yeah. had the right to vote at that time. And it was taken away from them during Federation. So in South Australia, everybody had the right to, to vote. Women had the right to run for parliament. Mm -hmm. And because of this, we were sort of ahead in a way, we were socially and politically ahead of the rest of the world. And a lot of Australian suffragists um, went to the United States and to the United Kingdom to help those women fight for the right to vote. And one of those women was a woman called Muriel Matters, and she had a lot to do with uh, the suffragist movement in the UK. Well, we'll jump ahead now to Adelaide, 1989, and a retiring female lexicographer was celebrating that a welcome to country was in a language which had started to be collected into a dictionary. But she was also doing a book launch. What was she launching? So she was, she was actually doing a, a seminar. As she was like the guest speaker at a conference. Uh, and she was talking about... Well, she was talking about the dic a dictionary of lost words. So 
but she was used, she was introduced by somebody who, because this conference is held in Adelaide, she was introduced by, by a lexicographer who was talking about Ghana language. And Ghana language is the first language that was spoken on the Adelaide Plains by the Indigenous Aboriginal people from this place where, where I'm from. And back in, oh, it was the, you know, 1830s, when there were German missionaries had come to South Australia, uh, a few German missionaries collected Ghana words and language, um, and they preserved these words. And actually, and these words were shared by the, you know, by the, um, the, the kings of the Ghana mob that lived here. And so this, this exchange of language was incredibly important. Uh, and these missionaries were doing the work of lexicographers, I suppose. And because of that, and because of the generosity of the Aboriginal people in terms of sharing their words and culture, Ghana people today can now learn and speak their language mm-hmm. because because of colonisation, their language was suppressed for such a long time and many generations of Ghana people didn't speak their language. But because it was written down, they can now resurrect it. And they're, they're also arguing and they're, they're debating about um, how the words were written down and whether they were accurate and so on. But, you know, I think that's what this book, I'm hoping this book has that sort of modern day um, link in terms of language. And, of course, she was there to launch the second edition of the Oxford Dictionary. You acknowledge reading The Surgeon of Crowthorne and Simon Winchester's book. He gave, at the end, a definition of a coda and then went on to thank people. You thank many people after defining their task. Who was your experienced and trusted counsellor, your mentor? Tony Jordan, who many of your listeners would probably know because she's a local Melbourneite. She's obviously a wonderful writer, but she's also an extraordinary teacher. And I sought her out as a mentor because I really love the guidance of people who know more than me and have more experience than me. And I hadn't written fiction before. And I I really valued the input that she had into my development as as a novelist, I suppose. And it's something I highly recommend in every walk of life, you know, whether you're writing or whether you're starting a new job or a new industry or a new occupation. I think finding mentors uh, is just a wonderful way to get started and develop confidence. Well, Pip Williams has written a most engaging story of how and why a word may be lost and how a woman engages in the society of the early 1900s in the Dictionary of Lost Words. Thank you very much, Pip. Oh, thank you, Jan, for having me. It's been a huge pleasure. Well, Jan, that takes us out for another week. And look, more books to read for next week, more authors to chat with. Despite the travails of uh, coronavirus and such like, we will do our best to keep bringing you more authors next week. See you then. Well, let's talk then. (laughs) (laughs) You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.